Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, February the 23rd. We're really busy today talking about masks in Quebec and how they're going to make them uh, optional. Okay, we're not seeing them go away. They're just going to be optional. You'd think that'd be a happy medium and they wouldn't be politicized. No, you'd be wrong. But this is where we're headed. This is where we're headed. We've said this for months. Uh, we'll have Marcy Ian, Liberal MP, on the show. We'll talk about Black History Month, but also what's been happening in the city of Ottawa, where she works. Important to have that conversation, both levels of that conversation. And also, Chatterbox was great today with Mike Drolet and our own Kelly Cotrera. So you'll enjoy that segment as well. Thanks very much for finding us. Toronto Today for Wednesday begins now. I know there's going to be a discussion about masks, schools. Uh, you heard that uh, wraparound from uh, Tina Trajani earlier in uh, Dave Bradley's newscast. I think this is going to be really fascinating. Um, there's, <laughs> we've got the lowest risk group, okay? The lowest risk group to bad COVID outcomes. Uh, and they have had to live lives a little differently than the rest of us as adults have, okay? Um, and there's a little bit of a credentialism happening here with COVID restrictions over the last, especially post-vaccination, and especially after we got our second and then our third, there's a group out there, and we're going to have to push through this to me, okay? You know, that they, they love to tell you that the kids are resilient. They love to tell you they can handle this and handle that, but they're not them, and kids don't have lobbyists, and kids don't have unions, and kids can't organize a proper demonstration on their own. They can't have a strike day. I mean... I guess there was talk that kids were going to walk out uh, potentially over the idea of continued masking. And they have done that in some areas in the United States. But any kind of coverage of a walkout for kids in Ontario or anywhere else has kind of ended up fizzling. But what people seem afraid to give up is the idea of going in the other direction, which a lot of us are doing. We've been talking about that for months on this show, months now. Um, and some people like COVID for the lives that it's created for themselves. They enjoy the work from home. Maybe it's better that they work from home. That's okay. That's fine. But um, but don't use your kid in a mask 35 hours a week as cover for that. Once the mask comes off your kid, if your boss wants you back, what's, what's your excuse going to be? What's your excuse going to be to keep, you know, wandering around in your pajamas and doing a job that you used to get dressed up for and drive in? And, you know, communicate and assimilate with other people. So there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of people who love COVID for the, they like the moral high ground. We had, we had helicopter parenting anyway, but that was just about our own kids. You'd be, you'd see parents and you'd be like, oh, those, they're helicopter parents. Now COVID gave people the uh, wherewithal and the bandwidth to be helicopter parents for you and your kids. <laughs> You're doing that with your son or daughter. I wouldn't do that. But there's COVID going on. I wouldn't take them there. And they love to, there's an element of control mixed with condescension. I can't think of much worse than those two C words. Two C words. Control and condescension that, that mixes in with that moral high ground. And some of us have just said, uh, okay, you know what? Let's just do what we do. We'll do our own thing. We'll be, uh, as I like to put it, our own chief medical officer of health for our household. And we'll, you know, talk to our parents about this and we'll talk to siblings. And um, there is going to come a point in time and it's right on people's doorstep and they don't necessarily like it. 
And by the way, the amount of people I know whose kids have been in school or, or, or sorry, who, whose kids caught COVID out of school the four weeks we were out of school, numerous, numerous. I know parents that mask up both their kids in public school and both those kids got COVID and they get other colds also. But what's happening in school right now is a bit of a it's a bit of a dystopian reality. There aren't regular activities. You're eating lunch very quietly. Look straight ahead. Don't talk. Don't socialize. And there has been a time where we've had to, you know, again, use that element of caution about all this. Of course we have. But I would say, yeah, I would call that a dystopian reality. No activities, no sports, no field trips, no dances, no interaction. Come to class, sit down, keep your mask on, just listen and learn for two hours. Or now 75 minutes now that we've gone back to semester. By the way, remember when semesters were going to be the be-all and end-all, people weren't feeling safe? How's that working out for everybody? People shrug their shoulders. We don't have teachers sitting in freezing cars anymore like they're Karen Silkwood okay, or Aaron Brockovich. We all just shrugged our shoulders. Hey, you know, be your own scene if you want. We're sending our kids to school and 98% of teachers are ready to go. We were all good with that. So, um, and, and we all already know that we're doing stuff and we see people on TV, whether it's at the Super Bowl, whether it's here, whether it's uh, out at crowded bars, if your kid wears a mask all day, seven hours a day, 35 hours a week, and you head out for a lovely dinner, you, you know, you know, the good people realize the hypocrisy of that. The good people realize that there's adults that are very fixated on masking kids. The lowest risk demographic, again, we're going we're gonna to have a lot of uh, you know, post-game reaction to a lot of what we've done here. A lot of what we've done here. And, by the way, let's go say the real thing, okay? If you're wearing an N95 or a KN95, you might have a layer of protection that is infinitely better than a cloth mask. But if you're vaccinated and you've got that N95, you're pretty damn well protected. Why do you care what anybody else does? What are you worried about? Are you worried about the mask? Is it the vaccines? That strikes me as almost an anti-vax sentiment to not believe in the vaccine enough that you need everybody else around you to wear an N95 mask. Oh, so these, are, these aren't new topics. And many years of mask research show uh, the cloth mask weren't doing much to stop an aerosolized aerosol virus. Uh, to put it quite distinctly. Um, we'll get to that in a little bit, although I just spent a good amount of time on it now. I found this interesting in the Ottawa Citizen, and I'll get to Ukraine as well, this segment. Uh, residents recover from Freedom Convoy while many fear it may return. And I told you about a story before we uh, broke about the Rideau Center yesterday, and and I think a lot of people were watching it for about an hour or so. Big police presence, obviously, still downtown in Ottawa. And I don't know how this one um, ended up going the way it went, without us getting more information. There's a police investigation and they did arrest a man, but the police had earlier um, tweeted out the idea that there was somebody with a possible weapon. According to the Ottawa Citizen, police tweeted they responded to a shoplifting call with a, quote, possible weapon, that one person was arrested and there was no threat to public safety. But then they later deleted that tweet. So was there a weapon or not? What there was was officers with guns drawn outside the mall. And for goodness sake, just as, and that was just before lunchtime, Gord Miller, the TSN broadcaster, tweeted that he walked over, must have had to do a Sens game that night on TV, on TSN. And he tweeted about go, walking over to the Rideau Center. Um, I've done that many times when um, 
I was doing an OHL team that we'd come in to play the 67s and you'd always want your hotel near the Rideau Center, Parliament Hill, so you could walk around. Ottawa's lovely, especially in the fall. Not right now, uh, this time of year. Um, but my goodness, like the poor employees of the mall, they just get back to reopening and what are they at work? Two hours before they get told to evacuate the mall? Relate to that. Think about how that must have uh, sounded and felt per se. So there is a person in custody and no details are being made available, but I kind of feel like the Ottawa police, maybe in that community with the level of um, forthcomingness and trust that they might like to reestablish, should tell people what the hell happened yesterday. That's me. That's me wondering that. Like, like, like got a lot of questions about how this particular scenario transpired. So that happens at Rideau Center. This Ottawa citizen story about residents recovering from Freedom Convoy. Look, I'm, I'm of two minds of it. One, if you feel a certain way, we have to listen to you. But going back almost to the mask thing, we will listen to you. We will try and understand you don't get to dictate policy. You don't get to dictate rules for the rest of us. We'll understand your rules. Like I mentioned this about masks. I've told my kids, I'm like, not for a second when you aren't wearing masks to school someday, some year, some whenever, <laughs> um, two years into this, uh, you won't make fun of anybody else who's doing it, period. And neither will your friends. And you'll be, you'll be, you know, leaders here. You'll see something, say something, and you won't tolerate it. Now we also have, so we have to understand that people in Ottawa who may be triggered or they still can't sleep or they hear the honk of a horn and it makes them a little, a little skittish. I understand all that, but the Ottawa citizen, basically, I mean, if you were looking for the foremost panicked and paranoid people in Ottawa to interview and put them all in the same story, well, they did that. Is there anybody in the story that is shrugging their shoulders going, um, that was rough on a lot of us, but uh, I'm pretty cool moving on now. No. Is there anybody saying, ah, oh, great to have them gone. Um, I I'm so looking forward to getting back to normal and I don't give it a second thought anymore. It was lousy, but here we are. No. So there's people hearing horns in their nightmares documented in this particular story. <sighs> okay. I, I understand how much anxiety would have, could have been induced. I didn't live there. Many of you didn't either. Some of you listen from Ottawa, and that's great. But And you're welcome to weigh in, 289-975-1640 on text. But there must be more than enough people reading this going, look, we're relieved. We were not sure where our community was going. There was a bit of a uh, dread about waking up in the morning and wondering what was next. But, you, you know, th they put a Mount Rushmore all-star team together of people that are um, that, that honestly all seem like they need psychological counseling and let's get them that. Okay. Let's make some room for that at the federal level or at the local level to allow for them to get services that handle them, uh, handle where they are right now. There's a retired gentleman named Derek Bauer said times during the occupation, he felt like crying. He's still shaking with anger. Okay. You feel that way. And we have to recognize that, but here's, Here's his quote. We're mad about the truckers, those people who support a movement but don't really know anything about it and are taken advantage of by the movement. Well, that doesn't describe everybody. I mean, if we're talking about the leaders of the convoy, I got you 100%. I understand why you're a little ticked off and why they had rather nefarious goals associated with the, uh, the protest. But that sure wasn't everybody that showed up in Ottawa. Not, not the first weekend, not the second weekend either. 
He, he says, any sympathy people might have had before the honking and blocking of intersections and the intimidation, that evaporated very quickly. And I have to say, I don't like our flag anymore. Well, okay. Okay, we can't get a new one for you. Um, can we work through your, your pain? Like, we can do those things. Like, I'm serious. We can do those things. We need to help this man. But we also don't need to put him on the front page of a major newspaper and say, this is how the majority of Ottawa residents are feeling. Because that's not my experience. I worry again, we're doing that. We did this a lot with COVID. Let's get the most scared person we can think of who doesn't want to send their kids back to school. The te- a 35 year old boosted teacher with an N95, but they are panicked. Okay. There's a doctor that gets t- uh, interviewed all the time in Ottawa. She-, she thinks people are trying to kill her every day. She's afraid to go to work. She's going to get assassinated. And they talk to her constantly. Let's go back to her, back to her, back to her. I don't know how healthy it is for the people getting interviewed. I sure don't know how healthy it is for the people reading it. And again, your concerns are real. They do feel, I don't think this is a bunch of phony business, but I do wonder, again, the story is residents recover from Freedom Convoy. We didn't have this in our backyard in Toronto. I didn't have it in my front yard with trucks with diesels, diesel fuel and honking and the rest of it. I didn't. I don't know what it would be like to move right along. But it does look like these people are almost being exploited by their fears. Are you scared? Like to be in the newspaper? Have I got a match for you? Match.com. Let's go. Let's have a chat about it. That's what it looks like. Um, I could be wrong about this, but this is how it looks to me, is we're taking advantage a little bit of people who are just panicked and paranoid uh, about where it's going to go. And I understand, right? There's encampments. People are concerned about protesters regrouping and coming back. I think that's a story, but that doesn't, that's not even what gets covered in this particular uh, article. Hey, very happy uh, to welcome in our next guest. She is the Minister for Women and Gender Equity and Youth and the MP for Toronto Centre, uh, former broadcaster, uh, Marcy Ian. It's great to have you on the show. You know that we've, uh, we've missed our chats. Thank you very much for making the time for our audience here in Toronto. Oh, Greg, it's great to be with you again. Good morning. How are you? Uh, decent enough. I went. Uh, I had a quick trip to Los Angeles. That was my first COVID flight. You've probably flown a lot more than I have in the last uh, year and a half or so. But with my wife in China, I flew to Los Angeles. Now, here's a great teenage question for you. Uh, my 16-year-old, yeah. really responsible kid. He's nothing like, not the, like those 80s movies we saw, like Tom Cruise in Risky Business <laughs> or Anthony Michael Hall in huh? 16 Candles. He said... I want you to leave me alone and and let me watch the house for two nights with my 13-year-old brother. And I just couldn't do it. I feel like he's a year away, but I, I erred on the side of, out of an abundance of caution, that off-use. Would you have done that for your, for, for a six? Girls are more responsible earlier on. on I know that. I'm with you on that. 16, I think, is a little young. <laughs> my girl is, I do. My girl is 17, about to be 18, and she's got a 10, almost 11-year-old brother, and I think I would leave Blaze with Dash at 18, but not 16. I know. I felt like it's a year away, and I tried to explain that to him. And you remember yeah. what it's like to be a teenager. A year feels like a half decade. A week feels like three months <laughs> when that girl doesn't like you or you flunk a test. It's like, oh, my God. Exactly. There's a big difference between 16 and 17 and a huge one between 16 and 18. So you did the right thing, Dad. 
You're all good. And I haven't, he hasn't seen a lot of those 80s movies, so I didn't want to give him any ideas uh, <laughs> about, you know, they, there's a little more raunch happening 30 years ago. I think we've cleaned our act up a little bit. I hope our teenagers have anyway, um, to some little, extent. Just a smidgen. So um, I watched your video um, on Black History Month. It's it's so significant. And sometimes I feel like we've got this lens where we view a lot of pop culture. I'm sure you did this on the social. You view a lot of pop culture through the United States. And you're like, we're talking about a lot yeah. of American things. There's a there's a higher percentage of black population down there. They they enacted Martin Luther King Day. We need our own Canadian heroes sometimes. Viola Desmond. Like we need to. You know, we need to do more sometimes. I sometimes I think it, it's great to have brilliant black filmmakers and talk about Martin Luther King, talk about Malcolm X, talk about the history of it all. A black president, no less, currently a black vice president. But we don't often do that enough in Canada, I find. What's your thought on it? I absolutely agree. And it starts when kids are young, it starts when they're in school and what they're taught. Because I don't know about you, but I think back to even elementary school, and you're right. I was learning about American heroes. I was learning mm -hmm. about Martin Luther King, and, and I think about that, Greg, and I think what happens to kids when they don't see themselves in classes, in schools, in books they're reading. You know, they're being fed stuff at an early age that doesn't include them, and, and that has to stop. And so, you know, I like to talk, for instance, about Marianne Shad because of my previous career. This is a black woman who was the first publisher in the country. You know, Jean Augustine paved the way for me to be, you know, the second black woman cabinet minister in our country's history. But she did it, you know, and it's because mm -hmm. of her that we even have Black History Month. So you're right, the Viola Desmond, the Jean Augustine, the Donovan Baileys of the world who made history back in the 96 games. It, and then I look at, you know, in Toronto Center, I look at Regent Park and, and there's a kid named, I call him a kid, but he's not, um, named Yassine <laughs> Osman who, who has Shoot for Peace where he said, I went to the basketball courts one day and I basically talked to all the kids who weren't playing basketball and asked them if they'd be interested in photography. And years later, he now has this amazing organization that teaches kids how to, how to take photographs. And they've made some amazing connections where they even sell their work. There's another gentleman named Clarence Ford, and he teaches kids circus arts, like social circus arts. So they're juggling. And he says it boosts their confidence and gives them resilience and courage. These are everyday heroes that we need to celebrate. Marcy Ian is our guest liberal MP on Toronto Today. When you went into journalism, when you went into broadcasting, did you look around when you went to Ryerson or when you first got into a newsroom and thought, I feel welcome here? I see, I Because I, you probably didn't see a lot of yourself watching TV no. in the 70s and 80s. You couldn't have. No. no, I didn't. And Greg, I didn't always feel welcome, but I knew mm -hmm. I had to be there. And it wasn't easy, but I knew that I had to be there because I wanted people to come up after me. And there's also this, um, it's this kind of innate pressure that when you're a first, whether it's in a newsroom, on a show or wherever it is, that you have this pressure that I can't make a mistake. I've got to be really, really good because if I make a mistake, that means that there won't be opportunities for others. And that is something, Greg, that I have always carried with me, you know, rightly or wrongly. You know, I had to be better researched. I had to put more work in. You know, I couldn't misspeak. 
all of that because I wanted to make sure that if I was the first, there was most definitely going to be a second and a third and a fourth and a tenth and a twentieth. That must be so reassuring for you when you now have younger people saying, I, I want to be Marcy Ian. Like it's, it's one thing for me to say, well, I want to be Bob Costas or I want to be Keith Olbermann, but, the, yeah. but they've always passed down generations to generations of yes, white male broadcasters. I'm well aware of that, but then I'll watch, I'll watch Greg Gumbel and think he's brilliant, right? I'll watch Solomon Wilcox and think yeah. he's amazing on NFL games. You've got younger girls and, and probably younger, uh, you know, African Canadian black boys saying, I want to be, I want to do what Marcy Ian does. I want to be on TV. Yeah, and, and, you know, this is why it was so important for me to mentor kids, because frankly, Greg, I didn't have that, and I really wanted to be what I didn't have. So there are thousands, I would say, kids through, you know, a 20, 25-year career that came through the newsroom, and I, I helped mentor and continue to when I can, because I want them to know that this is possible, that anything is possible, and it will not be easy. And there will be times where you will want to throw in the towel and give up because things aren't fair or you're not getting your fair shake. But it's just so important to persevere and so important to go on and for them to know they've got someone to call when that's going on just to say, hey, stay in the game. I know we talked last time out um, probably at the at the height of some uh, COVID concerns and we talked about just restrictions on kids and the struggle and, and how, you know, we can we can play the game where kids are resilient and they might be for a while. But we're two years in now. It's a finite time yeah. to be as we were talking at the start, finite time to be younger or, or a teenager. As far as being a uh, a child that is black or a teenager that is black in Canada. Do you see it getting better? Has it become notably better? Has it become exponentially better and easier than it might have been 10, 15 years ago? Or are still there are a lot of the same struggles? There are a lot of the same struggles. There, there, there really are. And I think when you look at, at social media, that just amplifies things too. Because I'll go back to that point when you don't see yourself in positions of leadership, when you don't see yourself you know, in the halls of power in this country, it's trauma. It, it really is, right? Because it's trauma after tra thinking, I don't fit in. And I think a lot of kids are in that place trying to find their place. And this is where mentorship, and I'm not just talking about African-Canadian people. I am talking about people from mm -hmm. all walks of life showing kids what is possible because mental health right now, it's, it's rough. It is. I talk to a lot of kids. I, I listen to a lot of kids. I'm working with fellow cabinet ministers on plans for kids because it is we are in uh, some dire circumstances right now. We really are. This pandemic has done a number on our young people who have been in school, been out of school, who have had you know, plans just thrown up in the air, are wondering about, you know, graduation, whether they're quick to graduate. My daughter, uh, Blaze, said the other day, I'm not even sure I know how to write a proper essay because, you know, there are things that we haven't done. They haven't had proper exams, you know, and she said, and here I am about to go to university. There are just so many things that are weighing on the minds of our kids. And, and we see it, you know, unfortunately, we see suicide rates up, um, self-harm, 
all of these things, Greg. So we need to be listening and we need to be taking some serious action. And I'm you glad know, you said that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think kids want to write exams. Every kid I, I talk to says, you're not preparing me by sort of coddling Absolutely. me through the pandemic. I want to, I want to get Absolutely. tested. Cause when I wrote a, by the Absolutely. way, when I wrote a bad exam, I knew what I did wrong and I tried not to do it a second time or a third time or a fourth time. I mean, exactly. we ended up in journalism, exactly. so we must've done something right. <laughs> yeah, we did something right. Um, Marcy Yins, our guest, of course, Minister for Women and Gender uh, Equality and Youth and Member of Parliament for Toronto Centre. Now, if you were still on uh, on the social and you had a uh, MP on from the federal government and it was the Wednesday after the weekend in Ottawa, you'd have to ask some questions. So what was what was Ottawa like over the weekend? We obviously saw a, a real change in. I think both policing and in terms of the methodology by which the blockade was ended from Friday morning through, in essence, Sunday evening. What were your observations of it? Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, the past month, Greg, was really something to behold. But with invoking the Emergencies Act, it really allowed the government to mobilize essential services uh, and to allow the RCMP to act quicker and to enforce local laws because in speaking to people in Ottawa, being in Ottawa, you know, people couldn't go outside their homes in some areas. I was hearing from women's shelters, women who had fled abusive relationships and gone into shelters afraid to walk outside. And personally, I only went outside to go to the hill and do my job. Normally, when in Ottawa, I would, you know, take walks mm. and, you know, meet up with people. I was too scared to do that. I, I felt unsafe, completely unsafe. I have um, staff. Um, a lot of my staff are racialized, and I told them to work virtually, that they should absolutely not come to the Hill to accompany in any, me in any way because I didn't feel safe. At the same time, when I look at social media, I don't think that it tells the full story. We're not as divided as social media would have us believe. We are not. And so because of that, I think there is hope. And that's going to mean a lot of listening. It's going to mean a lot of empathy. It certainly doesn't mean, you know, MPs screaming at each other in the Mm -hmm. house. It doesn't mean the lack of kindness. And I, and I will say this, there are many people who said, well, you know, they're there and it's, it's not violent and things are okay. And I've said to many a person, if, if you see a Confederate flag and you see swastikas and symbols and all these things, even one, two, five, I don't care how many, that is absolutely absolute violence. It's psychological violence because anybody who sees that knows what it means. And that is violence in itself. Mm. I completely reject the fact that, you know, this was mostly nonviolent. It wasn't. As yeah, vi- vi- now, violence is violence, but one of those flags is too many. And psych- and how people funny. feel matter and what they're afraid of or intimidated by um, certainly matters. I- I'd ask you if you think that this this could have been snuffed out much much earlier. Maybe not after the opening weekend, but did we did we all have a bit of a fall down at at maybe every level of government and law enforcement? Because I think to me, protesters saw 
Nobody was doing anything. Nobody was stopping me from this. Nobody was stopping me from that. And then you get it's a little like parenting, right? You get emboldened. You you lose discipline. You your house is not in order. And the house of the city of Ottawa, Marcy, was not in order those first two and a half weeks. It wasn't. And this is something, Greg, I mean, these are the things that have to be reflected on and seriously reflected on. You know, how does this, um, how, how do you do this in a way that doesn't mean people are stuck in their homes, businesses are shut down, the Rideau Center is shut down, which represents mm-hmm. so many jobs, small businesses are shut down. We've got to reflect on that. What do we do differently? And those are the questions that we're going to have to answer. Marcy Ian is our guest. Uh, Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that and for Black History Month uh, as well. You're always welcome on our show. Thanks very much for the time today. Oh, Greg, thank you so much. Stay well, okay? I will. You the same. Uh, Marcy Ian, uh, MP for uh, Toronto Centre. Really interesting story in the Star, and I wanted to follow up on it. In the uh, Toronto Star, that is. And here's the headline, uh, but we're going to get into it with Grant LaFleche. One of the authors of the uh, investigative piece, Ontario police officers are named in leaked list of donors to the Freedom Convoy. Toronto police and the OPP are investigating officers named in the leaked list of give, give, send, go donors. This is after the occupation began. This is after it was deemed illegal by the premier of Ontario and as well uh, the prime minister of Canada and many uh, Ontario cops donated to this list. Now, the story does not name the police officers, but the cops and uh, and their employers, the OPP, um, Toronto Police Services, Ottawa Police Service, are obviously uh, engaged in discussing who did what when. And it's I, I realize fully it's a really slippery slope. My initial instinct is, oh, I don't want to see anybody lose their job over this. And that's my still my my instinct that I would keep. It was my initial thought, but I'd like to know more about it. And I'm sure the cops bosses want to know more about it. Also, Grant LaFleche joins me right now on 640 Toronto on Toronto today. Grant, it's a fascinating piece. Give us a sense as to the genesis of how this investigative work started. The Give, Send, Go, which is a crowdfunding uh, website, Christian website, more or less like GoFundMe, was hosting a very large uh, fundraiser for the occupation in Ottawa, the called Freedom Convoy 2022. The donor list for that data, which is like 92,000 people uh, and over $10 million Canadian, had been had been leaked by hackers. And we had obtained uh, a copy of that list. Now, Marco uh, Ovid and I had done a piece looking at the top donors. Uh, Alex McKean and I had done another piece just looking at kind of where money had been had been coming from. But as you say, one of the things that was really interesting that we wanted to know was who was donating in positions of public trust and public authority. And given the amount of um, controversy surrounding what happened in Ottawa, the police response to it prior to the Emergencies Act, there were questions as to, you know, were there police officers who were supporting the protests? Were there police officers who had been donating financially to support it? So um, we put a team together at the STAR uh, investigative team, which is, as you say, me, Marco, Alex, and uh, Sheila, and we just poured into the data. And, and you know, the 92,000 names is like looking for a needle in a needle stack. Yeah. So the, so the way we sort of worked that through, and it's in the story when you read it, 
uh, we cross-referenced the list with the uh, the donor list with the Ontario Sunshine list, which is that's the list every year that comes out that shows anybody who's made more than a hundred grand on uh, public salary. That includes most police officers in Ontario. Uh, so we were able to cross-reference those names, and then we had to do a bunch of of gumshoe digging, looking at um, you know location data, postal codes, emails, uh, social media accounts. To really drill down to get to the point, you know, so if, if this person is on our cross-reference list with the Sunshine list, are they who we think they are? And can we confirm their, their police? And, and we ended up being able to confirm uh, more than a dozen officers from uh, Ottawa Police, OPP, and uh, Toronto PD um, had donated to that fund. And some of the distinction is important to make with the timing, isn't it? Because uh, you know that from these are donations from February 5th onward. So that opening that first weekend, that first Saturday of uh, of the protests in Ottawa uh, is January 29th. They were in yes. you know the GTA area a day or two before that. But by February 5th, we're into we're into the second weekend of this. So it's it's probably patently obvious for law enforcement officers and anybody else and that, and in the middle of that first week that's when gofundme you can't donate anymore and a lot of the money is is refunded yes. to donors so this second alternative option springs up so this isn't th- these aren't donations that came at christmas time or in the middle of january in, in, in a sort of preamble to the the freedom convoy coming to ottawa exactly and and even even more to the point by the time the Give, Send, Go Freedom Convoy 2022 fundraiser had been launched, you're, you're right, the GoFundMe campaign had been shut down because the Ottawa police had complained to GoFundMe and said this is being used for illegal activities. Um, the police, the prime minister, and eventually Doug Ford uh, in that span, Premier Doug Ford, had all said in one way or another, this is an illegal occupation. This is not a, this is not a charter protected protest anymore. It's an illegal occupation. So anybody who's donating from February 5th onward, as, as we found, as you say, that would be patently obvious what this was, not just what you see on the evening news or read in the paper, but this is what the police and the governments are saying as well. So the police officers who are donating February 5th onward, they know. I mean, it's, it's, mu- it's much harder to make the argument, well, I didn't know it was an illegal occupation at that point, because we all, we've all seen it and we've all heard it. And this is, this is what the police have been saying to that point which is one of the reasons why we're interested in looking at it. If this had been the GoFundMe campaign, which started in late January, you could perhaps make the argument, well, I didn't know what this was going to turn into. But by February 5th, we were now well deep into this occupation and they had dug in and there were all kinds of problems in, in the center block in Ottawa by that point. Grant LaFleche is our guest. Uh, this uh, investigative piece is in the Toronto Star, and you can see it at thestar.com. He's on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto uh, with myself, Craig Brady. Is this a this is also a distinction between occupation, too? I, I think people would wonder, well, would would a would a newspaper publish it if uh, if if teachers who are often on the sunshine list, if educators were donating or it, people that do what we do, Grant, people in the media, if they were donating that would be a point of interest, perhaps, but I think there is that distinction that the public would say we probably would want to know. Um, and and you haven't listed any of the names. That's up for internal. Yeah. That, that that's for the internal police organizations themselves to look at and and are. But it is it is tough, right? I I have sort of a an, you know an editorial group of checks and balances that I would go through. Uh, your paper would do that as well. It's it you know I I think we all have to weigh a lot of those issues before we. 
we go to air or we go to print with something patently obvious that that the timing and who law enforcement officers were um, cops, cops and, and at the highest level would want to know internally if this was happening. Yeah, and, and we had we had a long conversations as to who we name, you know, why we would name. So, for instance, we had published a story last week about the top five donors, and mm-hmm. you know, we're not naming the guy who donated fifty bucks. You know, Gregor Grant from Hamilton or Mississauga or something donates fifty bucks. I mean, that's not necessarily the, the donation may be public interest. The person, much less. So, if you've donated the most, if you donated a hundred thousand dollars or ninety thousand dollars to fund this, absolutely, that's given what's happened. That's in the public interest. When it came to the police, um, obviously, given what's happened and the fact that police, like nurses or doctors, for instance, um, are charged with protecting the public, uh, particularly during a pandemic who those people are, are a matter of public interest. But we ultimately decided, look, um, these are individuals who gave small donations. They're not elected or senior public officials, uh, including the police officers we were looking at for this story. So we ultimately decided not to name them. I, I suspect if it was, you know, a police chief responsible for protecting the city who donated, we would absolutely name that person. That was not the case here. So we had to, you have to be judicious about it. As you say, there's editorial checks and balances. We're not just publishing the entirety of the give send go data we have to vet it we have to confirm it and then we have to make our own choices in terms of saying you know is 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 naming joe toronto or joe ottawa who donated 100 bucks is that the public interest not necessarily and so we've we've pointed out the number of police officers we could confirm we've explained how we confirmed it but in this particular case we're not naming the officers because the donations were between i think $50 and $200 was the most for this particular cluster of officers. So we didn't think that rose to the level of actually publishing their names for the story. I know you didn't have an officer from the story. Um, you, you, it states there wasn't an officer come back with anything other than a no comment. Some didn't respond Correct. at all. Some said Correct. no comment. Had there been comment uh, and and then you, you say, can I use this as a comment? And they say, absolutely. Then does it go there? I mean, I'm in, I realize I'm investigating your investigation. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a but, do, but do you make that? I think that's a really important issue. And I'm sure, again, something you'd have to weigh very carefully. It, it is. I mean, I think we have, you know, newspapers, you know, when they do investigations, you know, we're not looking for somebody's permission to publish their name in this case. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're weighing um, the news value and the public interest in publishing their, their names in, in this particular case. Um, so, I mean... It, you know, if if it was somebody we said, oh, Greg, you know, you've donated $10,000 to this, you know, we've confirmed it's you through these number of ways. Do you have a comment? And you said no comment. We'd probably still publish your name if the dollar amount was enough or you were the head of a hospital or you were a police, you know, deputy chief or something. Um, in, in this case, we didn't even get a conversation. They either didn't respond or there was just, you know, no comment whatsoever. Um, so we can't even, we don't even have from those officers an explanation as to why they chose to donate. And I think, um, that's, that's important to know too. Um, you know, why did they just choose And they may have reasons for it. I mean, if you look at other stories we publish, other stories, other media have done where donors are explaining why they've done something. That's an important piece of the story. But in this case of the, you know, dozen plus officers that we were able to confirm, uh, not one decided to go on the record to explain uh, why they why they decided to donate to this. 
Grant LaFleche is our guest uh, on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. What on the the border? You're close enough to, I mean, those of us that have crossed in upstate New York um, for sports, entertainment, to see relatives and whatnot. When two weeks ago, Grant, when the Ambassador Bridge is is jamming up, there's concern about the Blue Water Bridge in Sarnia Port Huron. That's that's more my geography. Were there worries by officials in your area about about the Peace Bridge, about Niagara Falls? There, yeah. we, we just saw very little coverage of it. Was there anything that was even a? Um, and I'm asking because I don't know. Was there anything that was yeah. even a, a a modicum of a protest that got? got, you know, just sort of snuffed out really quick, that head to worry. There's not the trade level that the Ambassador Bridge brings, but when you consider it's a pipeline to to New York, uh, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, like it's a, a lot of traffic and commerce does cross um, in the Buffalo Niagara Falls area too. Oh, 100%. And in fact, where there was an attempt to have a protest on the Peace Bridge last week. Uh, and they had been the people who were organizing it on both sides of the border. It actually started as an American uh, effort. That was just like there was a lot of American money involved mm-hmm. in the Ottawa protest, the Windsor protest, the Surrey protest. Uh, this was there was American money and organization here as well. Um, but the the authorities on the Canadian side were pretty determined to not allow the peace bridge to be blocked. So uh, they had shut down lanes going into the bridge the day the protest was supposed to happen. Uh, traffic and, and large vehicles that were going to be part of that were diverted into a small community uh, called Fort Erie, which is near, right near uh, where the bridge is. And there was, you know, they the protesters did kind of step into the middle of the QEW at one point with with children in tow. Mm-hmm. And they stopped, uh, you know, a big rig and they stopped a couple other trucks to try to delay them or stop them from going through. But it didn't last very long. And then there was going to be a, another attempt to protest the peace bridge this time using um, protesters on horseback uh, and that they they uh they canceled that once the emergencies act uh was put into place they decided that the the risk of getting arrested was too high and so they they scuttled the whole thing but i mean there was and that was it was it's one of the interesting things that i think you know we're going to have to look at going forward is we know how coordinated things were on the ground in ottawa i mean they had Really, they had logistical bases, forward operating bases that could feed food, fuel, supply, material to the protesters in center block. Uh, the Windsor Bridge gets hit. You know, the, the Blue Water gets hit. Surrey gets hit. So uh, a coots right in, in Alberta. Um, so, that, I mean, there are key bridge, key international crossings. We Canada and the United States were all being hit um, nearly simultaneously or within a week of each other anyway. Uh there's a level of coordination that goes on there. And I think we're going to have to look at how, how was that all done? There's a grassroots element to this, but there, you know, this is not, you know, randomly happening. There's some thought being put into uh, where to protest, how to protest, which bridges are the most vulnerable uh, to sort of putting pressure on. And, and that's where we saw people. That's why the, the peace bridge, frankly, was at the bottom of that list. You identified it. it doesn't, it's got a lot of traffic. It doesn't have a lot of as much commercial traffic as say Windsor, Detroit, right? So it's an interesting question that we're going to have to spend some time looking at as as we move forward. So you might have caught wind yesterday of the news. Quebec will scrap masks in class for elementary and high school students. Here's the weird thing about Quebec is that they allowed at a certain point in time in the fall, and I'm not sure for how many months, it certainly was pre-Omicron, they allowed you to take the mask off when you sat down in the class. 
there wasn't transit in the hallways. If you had to pick up to go to the bathroom or walk to the school bus or even go to the cafeteria, little like a restaurant, you had to put the mask back on. But they're gone. Uh, we're done with it in Quebec anyway, according to Quebec Public Health. Shiva Siddiqui joins me right now. Um, what was your reaction to that news yesterday about elementary high school students no longer having that requirement? So excited. I am. But you don't. So are you moving to Quebec? Excited. I, well, no, I'm excited because I feel like we're getting closer. Ontario's getting there. We're getting there. We're, we're looking at everybody else. We're seeing what everybody else is doing. We're going to see what happens there. I feel like they're keeping close. I, I also feel like they're like Dr. Kieran Moore last week, based on his press conference, I feel like they're preparing us for it because they're starting to bring it into the conversation, talk about masking. They're going to review it further in March. Uh, I feel like we're almost there. And the thing is, it's not for me. I'm fine. I will wear a mask to the grocery store for as long as you want me to. It's for my kids. It's for my five-year-old who goes mm -hmm. to school, who we're working with him at home on his reading, on his pronunciation of the alphabet of his letters, because he doesn't have, he can't see his teacher's mouth when she's talking to him. So I am so, I'm over the moon, especially for all those younger kids. Get it off of them. And I hope this is a good sign for Ontario. I hope it is, too. And I do think um, people will understand that if the numbers were to somehow explode upwards and suddenly kids were getting sick or it was deemed that the removing of masks led yes. to community spread, we'd go back in the other direction. I would never say never towards any sort of regulation if it started to go south. But Sheba, you know, our kids are taking your kids are taking martial arts lessons and my and playing hockey and mine are playing soccer and going to movies. I had my 16-year-old with five kids in the basement on Monday night, and I'm like, you guys get out of here. Dad's got to work in the morning, and I'm only one of their dads. I should point that out. But for a million reasons, we've got kids getting together and doing things, trying to live at least some semblance of their best life. Well, again, you've got that freedom to go to the restaurant, the gym, wherever, and so do I, and so do many parents. And um, and it just hasn't been right to me. It, it, it has not been right. And I don't know how it ever got this political. The vaccine... The mask feels as political as the vaccine now in retrospect. It does. It does. I'm with you on that. People are very divided about the mask. And I get it, though. I get it because people say, follow the science. Okay, so I'm going to choose to follow the science. Here's the thing. What doctor do I follow? Because there are so many doctors who are telling me that they're following the science and they all disagree with each other. So, Greg, it does get confusing for me. You know, I, I, I turn on my computer and I start reading the papers and I don't know what to think. So at this point, I'm just trying to do what's best for my family, what I think is best for my children, for their mental health, for their childhood. I want these masks off. I'm not fighting for myself. I'm not fighting for myself at all. Do whatever you need to do with me. Save the kids. That's that's what I'm here for. And that's I can't wait. I'm really waiting for that announcement. I feel like it's going to come closer to March break, but I feel like it's coming. I would have signed up for april 1st maybe even the middle of april six weeks ago so if it's sooner than that great um and and it's going to take teachers to say i'm going to step up and be the brave one here i'll be the one to chaperone the you know the dance in june i'll be the one to handle you know graduation or get on the bus with them and take um and take a field trip somewhere that could be outdoors we're all going to get into better weather regardless of today in the next few days five six weeks from now so do we have a plan for it it just felt like a lot of the time and some of that can't be helped with how the virus evolved but if 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 we're steady here and static we've got potential to at least salvage 
the last couple months. I've got, I've got a grade eight whose older brother just had his grade eight eviscerated. They're two years different. So yes. two years ago, his grade eight year, um, about three weeks from now, two years ago, just gets blown up into smithereens. And, um, and so I know people want to project parents selfishness back onto this, but you're absolutely right. It is. I don't know many adults right now asking for five and six year olds to, you know, Make sure you take care of me. Now, I can take care of me. That's what the vaccines allowed us to do. Okay, we're not bo bobbing and dodging and weaving, um, trying to trying to hide from this anymore. And most people do believe now that we'll either have we'll either meet the virus at some point in time and we'll be vaccinated. We, we will. It'll barely be a ripple in our existence or we've met it already and it didn't do anything for us. Neither you have I. I said this to Dr. Chakrabarty the other night. I haven't gotten sick like I haven't. There hasn't been a single moment moment in 24 months where I've gotten sick and that's never ever happened to me I don't think I've ever gone seven or eight months without being out at least a day or thinking I'm really playing hurt by working today okay so months. do you do you attribute that to the mask wearing your mask good question some of it probably but there's just less travel right there's less you're not at bars you're not at restaurants you're not at concerts you're not at, at hockey games with 18,000 people I, outside of a couple um Canada soccer games outdoors. I don't, I just haven't been anywhere. The biggest crowd I'm in is the one I told you about last week. Um, customs Canada <laughs> coming back off the plane from Las. <laughs> That's the most crowded, um, germ filled environment. I feel like I've been in, in the last two years. I hear you. I'm with you on that. But I do think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you were wearing a mask. Uh, really, I do. I just feel like going to the grocery store with the mask on. And that's not saying like, I can't wait to get the mask off myself, but I'm not even talking about myself right now. I'm not even talking about the adult population. My focus is the kids because I have I have a personal I have a vested interest in that. I'm sick of you do? finding yeah. the masks every morning, you know, slapping them on the kids. They don't even they don't even they, sometimes they walk home from school and they're still wearing their mask. They don't even realize it's still on their faces. That's how you, used to it they've gotten. So like enough is enough. I want you guys to see each other's faces. If people aren't comfortable, make it, you know, if there are certain kids who want to keep wearing their masks, sure, but make it optional. And then and then there's just has it been working? Has it been working? Is it preventing hospitalizations? Yeah. Right? Yeah, Are there? Uh, find me the state. Find me the Western democracy that has a mask mandate that didn't have cases shoot through the roof in December and January. You won't be able to. You won't be able to. In closed circumstances, there might be cases where there's some benefit, and the N95 does a, does provide a lot more of a layer of protection. But our weekly visit with pharmacologist Sabina Vora Miller comes around. Um, wow, we got a lot to get to, and uh, as you, we, we had some calls on earlier, I know this mass topic is going to be an interesting one for Ontario to address. Um, where where does it land for you, Sabina? Let us know. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's a very it's a very tricky topic. I mean, first of all, mm -hmm. I think I mean I'm guessing yours. You, you're referring to the mask mandates being dropped in Quebec for kids. I mean, first of all, I think timing wise, uh, come, right after March break, after people are coming back from traveling, to me makes absolutely zero sense. Um, I also think, you know, we don't really have appropriate numbers on Omicron infections in our provinces because we're not really testing as much. So we know they're less, but we don't know where they actually are. And we have data from the U.S. CDC recent data showing that Omicron-related hospitalizations in children have been through the roof over the last two months. They're, you know, four times higher than Delta. In fact, five times higher in 
children who are under five who we know are not yet vaccinated. Um, And because of that, you know, the Children's Health Coalition here in Ontario has basically come out and said that they still strongly recommend masking for many reasons. And, you know, the Children's Health Coalition is essentially um, a coalition of all of the top uh, pediatric organizations in Ontario. It includes SickKids, it includes CHEO, which is, um, you know, the the hospital, the Children's Hospital Mm -hmm. in Ottawa. And and the reason for that is because, as I said, kids under five are not vaccinated. They can bring COVID home to their siblings, their younger siblings. And five to 12, only, uh, you know, only between 40 to 60 percent have a single dose and even lower for fully vaccinated. So vaccines are still not 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 there where we want it to be for the kids um you know and so i don't know i think with the masking it's an easy tool that we have that we can use um that i feel is going to really help us along with vaccinations to try and bring us to a point where this pandemic can come to an end what i see with hospitalization numbers you're right the zero to fives is concerning and but what i see and what i remember from my own um parenthood um is taking kids to emergency rooms with rotavirus, you know, you're worried about a whooping cough, heavy feet, high fevers and whatnot, especially this time of year, November through February. What I don't see with hospitalization numbers in Ontario, and, and I haven't really since the start of the calendar year, is six to about 40. We're really, really low with those numbers for hospitalizations. Mm-hmm. Do you see the same thing I see? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, when we're looking at the hospitalizations that are due to, um, you know, Omicron or due to COVID, we're not seeing them to be as severe as, you know, as we used to see them. So absolutely, the severity of the disease, you know, seems like in children is is less um, is less severe. But at the same time, as a parent, I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I can't. I, I, you know, we've we've had to be hospitalized for RSV, for norovirus, as you said, and it's never mm-hmm. a good place to be. No parent wants their child to be no. in a hospital, even if it is for two days. I mean, it's a stressful period, and if you can prevent it, um, you know, why wouldn't you? And then the other thing also is that we have to remember that schools are not, you know, just children. There's also staff, there's adults, there's teachers, there's custodial staff, there's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, staff that, that work in schools. And so, you know, if children are not masking, what does it mean for adults? Does that put them at a higher risk? Um, it, you know, and I think that as, we, as we've seen in the pandemic, nothing has zero risk for sure. But this, the idea is that we're trying to reduce the risk as much as we can. And personally, I feel masking is, is an easy way that we that we should be able to do this. Um, I don't know why masking has turned into a very highly debated and often political topic. Um, it's something that I just I, I don't I don't understand. Um. You're seeing, though, with cloth masks, I mean, Dr. Leona Wen went on and called them facial decorations. She was, she was pretty militant about protection of, of all ages before um, the pandemic. Couldn't I make the case that a cloth mask with Omicron, most experts don't feel it does very much. So unless a kid is wearing an N95 at age five or six for 35 hours a week, uh, are they really preventing any spread or transmission? Yeah, so I think with cloth masks as well, if you're looking at a three-layer cloth mask that fits well, um, you are seeing some protection from there. It's not that there's 0% protection from it. And I think it, again, comes back you know, to the Swiss cheese model where we're trying to cumulatively decrease the risk. I mean, you're never going to get to a point where something is 100% safe. Even an N95 mask, for instance, is not 100% safe. 
Um, but the idea is that you have some layer of security and some layer of safety going on over there. And even with cloth masks, I mean, if you're looking at a three-layer, proper three-layer mask that fits well all around the nose, the chin, the side, the cheeks um, of the face, I mean, if you're looking for a mask that is actually fitting well, there there is, it has between at least 40 to 60% protection in terms of filtration over there, just based on the three layers and the proper fit. I mean, it's not it's not 100%, but I don't think we can... You know, our quest for perfection can't make us not do something that is good. And I think that's where I struggle. Nothing's going to be perfect, but you're adding layers of protection and all of that matters. I, I just wonder how many five and six-year-olds have a three-layer mask and don't, you know, fiddle with it and mess with it. And, uh, and again... I, I do think there's some learning loss not seeing teachers' lips being read. I, I, I absolutely believe that. So it's not that no harm is being done. I, I know what you're saying. And, and there is a fix, certainly, for parents that, that choose um, to give these options. Let me get one last thought on Quebec. How many parents do you think will still send their kids? Do you think it'll be about half? Do you think it's 60-40, 70-30? Like, what do you expect to observe once um, things aren't mandated anymore? Yeah, I would think majority of parents would still mask at least, um, mm. you know, in, in the coming weeks. You know, I think that right after March break, especially the time when people are traveling and they're coming back into the country, right? Um, mm. So you might see an uptake in cases at that point as well. I think as we go into the summer where things warming up and hopefully, you know, we're, we're past this Omicron wave entirely, like, like we were last summer. I think that at that point, it would mm. be a different situation, you know, given that, Kids are getting more, more and more kids are getting vaccinated. We've seen a lot of infections, so we have some, you know, amount of herd immunity from inf- previous infections also. I think things will be different come April, May, June. Um, I think March is just too soon um, to see some of these protections being taken away. So, I mean, the last thing we need is that we take, we take masking away and then all of a sudden you're back to a position where you have sky high cases occurring all over again. I mean, I think that, you know, that whiplash from the back and forth flip-flopping, personally, I feel is is a lot more detrimental because, you know, you'll have something yeah. that goes away for three weeks and then it's back again, you know? No doubt. There's There's been some psychological uh, Im- impact there as well. I got to leave it here. Let's spend a lot longer on this next week. We'll have a longer visit next Wednesday, I promise. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you listening to Toronto Today. You can find us wherever you find your podcast, and you did. So spread the word, share it with a friend or several, and we'll be back tomorrow with a live show on 640 Toronto between 530 and 9 a.m.